Welcome back to my Relaxing Literature Podcast. Tonight we're continuing our reading of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. We're currently beginning Chapter 10, which is titled The PC and P.O. As spring came on, a new set of amusements became the fashion, and the lengthening days gave long afternoons for work and play of all sorts. The garden had to be put in order, and each sister had a quarter of the little plot to do what she liked with. Hannah used to say, I know which each of them gardenings belong to, if I see them in Chiny, and so she might, for the girls' tastes differed as much as their characters. Megs had roses and heliotrope, myrtle, and a little orange tree in it. Joe's bed was never like two seasons, for she was always trying experiments. This year, it was to be a plantation of sunflowers, the seeds of which cheerful land-aspiring plant were to feed Aunt Cockletop and her family of chicks. Beth had old-fashioned fragrant flowers in her garden, sweet peas and mignonette, larkspur, pinks, pansies, and southernwood, with chickweed for the birds and catnip for the pussies. Amy had a bower in hers, rather small and earwiggy, but very pretty to look at, with honeysuckles and morning glories hanging their colored horns and bells in graceful wreaths all over it, tall white lilies, delicate ferns, and as many brilliant, picturesque plants as would consent to blossom there. Gardening, walks, rows on the river, and flower hunts employed the fine days, and for rainy ones, they had house divisions, some old, some new, all more or less original. One of these was the PC, for as secret societies were the fashion, it was thought proper to have one, and as all of the girls admired Dickens, they called themselves the Pickwick Club. With a few interruptions, they had kept this up for a year, and met every Saturday evening in the big garret, on which occasions the ceremonies were as follows. Three chairs were arranged in a row before a table, on which was a lamp, also four white badges with a big PC in different colors on each, and the weekly newspaper called the Pickwick Portfolio, to which all contributed something, while Joe, who reveled in pens and ink, was the editor. At seven o'clock, the four members ascended to the club room, tied their badges round their heads, and took their seats with great solemnity. Meg, as the eldest, was Samuel Pickwick, Joe, being of a literary turn, Augustus Snodgrass, Beth, because she was round and rosy, Tracy Tubman, and Amy, who was always trying to do what she couldn't, was Nathaniel Winkle. Pickwick, the president, read the paper, which was filled with original tales, poetry, local news, funny advertisements, and hints, in which they good-naturedly reminded each other of their faults and shortcomings. On one occasion, Mr. Pickwick put on a pair of spectacles without any glass, rapped upon the table, hemmed, and having stared hard at Mr. Snodgrass, who was tilting back in his chair till he arranged himself properly, began to read, The Pickwick Portfolio, May 20th. Poet's Corner, Anniversary Ode Again we meet to celebrate with badge and solemn rite, our fifty-second anniversary in Pickwick Hall tonight. We all are here in perfect health, none gone from our 
our small band. Again, we see each well-known face and press each friendly hand. Our Pickwick, always at his post, with reverence we greet. As spectacles on nose, he reads our well-filled weekly sheet. Although he suffers from a cold, we joy to hear him speak, or words of wisdom from him fall, in spite of croak or squeak. Old six-foot snodgrass looms on high, with elephantine grace, and beams upon the company with frown and jovial face. Poetic fire lights up his eye, he struggles against his lot. Behold ambition on his brow, and on his nose a blot. Next our peaceful Tubman comes, so rosy, plump, and sweet, who chokes with laughter at the puns and tumbles off his seat. Prim little Winkle, too, is here, with every hair in place, a model of propriety, though he hates to wash his face. The year is gone, we still unite, to joke and laugh and read, and tread the path of literature that doth to glory lead. Long may our paper prosper well, our club unbroken be, and coming years their blessings pour on the useful gay P.C. A. Snodgrass The Masked Marriage, A Tale of Venice Gondola after gondola swept up the marble steps, and left its lovely load to swell the brilliant throng that filled the stately hills of Count Avalon. Knights and ladies, elves and pages, monks and flower girls, all mingled gaily in the dance. Sweet voices and rich melody filled the air, and so with mirth and music the masquerade went on. Has your highness seen the Lady Viola tonight? asked a gallant troubadour of the fairy queen who floated down the hall upon his arm. Yes, is she not lovely, though so sad? Her dress is well chosen, too, for in a week she weds Count Antonio, whom she passionately hates. By my faith, I envy him. Yonder he comes, arrayed like a bridegroom, except the black mask. When that is off, we shall see how he regards the fair maid whose heart he cannot win, though her stern father bestows her hand, returned the troubadour. "'Tis whispered that she loves the young English artist who haunts her steps, and is spurned by the old count,' said the lady as they joined the dance. The revel was at its height when a priest appeared, and withdrawing the young pair to an alcove hung with purple velvet, he motioned them to kneel. Instant silence fell on the gay throng, and not a sound but the dash of fountains or the rustle of orange groves sleeping in the moonlight broke the hush, as Count de Avalon spoke thus. My lords and ladies, pardon the ruse by which I have gathered you here to witness the marriage of my daughter. Father, we wait your services. All eyes turned toward the bridal party, and a murmur of amazement went through the throng, for neither bride nor groom removed their masks. Curiosity and wonder possessed all hearts, but respect restrained all tongues till the holy rite was over. Then the eager spectators gathered round the count, demanding an explanation. Gladly would I give if I could, but I only know that it was the whim of my timid Viola, and I yielded to it. Now, my children, let the play end, unmask, and receive my blessing. But neither bent the knee the young bridegroom replied in a tone that startled all listeners as the mask fell, disclosing the noble face of Ferdinand Devereux, the artist-lover, and leaning on the breast where now flashed the star of 
English girl was the lovely Viola, radiant with joy and beauty. My lord, you scornfully bade me claim your daughter when I could boast as high a name and vast a fortune as the Count Antonio. I can do more, for even your ambitious soul cannot refuse the Earl of Devereux and de Vere when he gives his ancient name and boundless wealth in return for the beloved hand of this fair lady, now my wife. The Count stood like one changed to stone, and turning to the bewildered crowd, Ferdinand added with a gay smile of triumph, To you, my gallant friends, I can only wish that your wooing may prosper as mine has done, and that you may all win as fair a bride as I have by this masked marriage. S. Pickwick lies the PC like the Tower of Babel. It is full of unruly members. The History of a Squash Once upon a time, a farmer planted a little seed in his garden, and after a while it sprouted and became a vine and bore many squashes. One day in October, when they were ripe, he picked one and took it to market. A grocer man bought it and put it in his shop. That same morning, a little girl in a brown hat and blue dress with a round face and snub nose went and bought it for her mother. She lugged it home, cut it up, and boiled it in the big pot, mashed some of it with salt and butter for dinner, and to the rest she added a pint of milk, two eggs, four spoons of sugar, nutmeg, and some crackers, put it in a deep dish, and baked it till it was brown and nice. The next day, it was eaten by a family named March. T. Tupman Mr. Pickwick, sir, I address you upon the subject of sin. The sinner, I mean, is a man named Winkle who makes trouble in his club by laughing and sometimes won't write his piece in this fine paper. I hope you will pardon his badness and let him send a French fable because he can't write out of his head as he has so many lessons to do and no brains in future, I will try to make time by the fetlock and prepare some work which will be all coming la foe. That means all right. I am in haste, as it is nearly school time. Yours respectably, N. Winkle. The above is a manly and handsome acknowledgment of past misdemeanors. If our young friend studied punctuation, it would be well. A sad accident. On Friday last, we were startled by a violent shock in our basement, followed by cries of distress. On rushing in a body to the cellar, we discovered our beloved president prostrate on the floor, having tripped and fallen while getting wood for domestic purposes. A perfect scene of ruin met our eyes, for in his fall, Mr. Pickwick had plunged his head and shoulders into a tub of water, upset a cake of soft soap upon his manly form, and torn his garments badly. On being removed from this perilous situation, it was discovered that he had suffered no injury, but several bruises, and we are happy to add, is now doing well. E.D. The Public Bereavement It is our painful duty to record the sudden and mysterious disappearance of our cherished friend, Mr. Snowball Pat Paul. This lovely and beloved cat was the pet of a large circle of warm and admiring friends, her beauty attracted all eyes, her graces and virtues endeared her to all hearts, and her loss is deeply felt by the whole community. When last seen, she was sitting at the gate, watching the butcher's cart, and it is feared that some villain, tempted by her charms, basely stole her.
Weeks have passed, but no trace of her has been discovered, and we relinquish all hope, tie a black ribbon to her basket, set aside her dish, and weep for her as one lost to us forever. A sympathizing friend sends the following gem. A lament for S.B. Patpaw. We mourn the loss of our little pet, and sigh o'er her hapless fate, for never more by the fire she'll sit, nor play by the old green gate. The little grave where her infant sleeps is neath the chestnut tree, but o'er her grave we may not weep, we know not where it may be. Her empty bed, her idle ball, will never see her more, no gentle tap, no loving purr is heard at the parlor door. Another cat comes after her mice, a cat with a dirty face, but she does not hunt as our darling did, nor play with her airy grace. Her stealthy paws tread the very hall where Snowball used to play, but she only spits at the dogs our pet so gallantly drove away. She is useful and mild and does her best, but she is not fair to see, and we cannot give her your place, dear, nor worship her as we worship thee. A.S. Advertisements This Orinthy Pluggage, the accomplished, strong-minded lecturer, will deliver her famous lecture on Woman and Her Position at Pickwick Hall next Saturday evening after the usual performances. A weekly meeting will be held at Kitchen Place to teach young ladies how to cook. Anna Brown will preside and all are invited to attend. The Dustpan Society will meet on Wednesday next and parade in the upper story of the clubhouse, all members to appear in uniform and shoulder their brooms at nine precisely. Mrs. Beth Bouncer will open her new assortment of dolls' millinery next week. The latest Paris fashions have arrived and orders are respectfully solicited. A new play will appear at the Barnville Theatre in the course of a few weeks, which will surpass anything ever seen on the American stage. The Greek Slave, or Constantine the Avenger, is the name of this thrilling drama. Hence, if S.P. didn't use so much soap on his hands, he wouldn't always be late at breakfast. A.S. is requested not to whistle in the street. T.T., please don't forget Amy's napkin. N.W., must not fret, because his dress has not nine ducks. Weekly report. Meg, good. Joe, bad. Beth, very good. Amy, middling. As the president finished reading the paper, which I beg leave to assure my readers is a bona fide copy of one written by bona fide girls once upon a time, a round of applause followed, and then Mr. Snodgrass rose to make a proposition. Mr. President and gentlemen, he began, assuming a parliamentary attitude and tone. I wish to propose the admission of a new member, one who highly deserves the honor, would be deeply grateful for it, and would add immensely to the spirit of the club, the literary value of the paper, and be no end jolly and nice. I propose Mr. Theodore Lawrence as an honorary member of the B.C. Come now, do have him. Joe's sudden change of tone made the girls laugh, 
but all looked rather anxious, and no one said a word as Snodgrass took his seat. We'll put it to a vote, said the President. All in favor of this motion, please manifest it by saying, Aye. A loud response from Snodgrass followed, to everybody's surprise, by a timid one from Beth. Contrary-minded, say no. Meg and Amy were contrary-minded, and Mr. Winkle rose to say with great elegance, We don't wish any boys. They only joke and bounce about. This is a ladies' club, and we wish to be private and proper. I'm afraid he'll laugh at our paper and make fun of us afterward, observed Pickwick, pulling the little curl on her forehead as she always did when doubtful. Up rose Snodgrass very much in earnest. Sir, I give you my word as a gentleman. Laurie won't do anything of the sort. He likes to write, and he'll give a tone to our contributions and keep us from being sentimental, don't you see? We can do so little for him, and he does so much for us. I think the least we can do is to offer him a place here, and make him welcome if he comes. This artful allusion to benefits conferred brought Tubman to his feet, looking as if he had quite made up his mind. Yes, we ought to do it, even if we are afraid. I say he may come, and his grandpa too, if he likes. This spirited burst from Beth electrified the club, and Joe left her seat to shake hands approvingly. Now then, vote again. Everybody remember it's our Laurie, and say, Aye, cried Snodgrass excitedly. Aye, 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 replied three voices at once. Good, bless you. Now, as there's nothing like taking time by the fetlock, as Winkle characteristically observes, allow me to present the new member. And to the dismay of the rest of the club, Joe threw open the door of the closet and displayed Lori sitting on a rag bag, flushed and twinkling with suppressed laughter. "'You rogue! You traitor! Joe, how could you?' cried the three girls, as Snodgrass led their friend triumphantly forth, and producing both a chair and a badge, installed him in a jiffy. "'The coolness of you two rascals is amazing,' began Mr. Pickwick, trying to get up an awful frown, and only succeeding in producing an amiable smile. But the new member was equal to the occasion, and rising, with a grateful salutation to the chair, said in the most engaging manner, Mr. President and ladies, I beg pardon, gentlemen, allow me to introduce myself as Sam Weller, the very humble servant of the club. Good, good, cried Joe, pounding with the handle of the old warming pan on which she leaned. My faithful friend and noble patron, continued Laurie with a wave of the hand, who has so flatteringly presented me, is not to be blamed for the base stratagem of tonight. I planned it, and she only gave in after lots of teasing. Come now, don't play it all on yourself. You know I proposed the cupboard, broke in Snodgrass, who was enjoying the joke amazingly. Never mind what she says. I'm the wretch that did it, sir, said the new member, with a Weller-esque nod to Mr. Pickwick. But on my honor, I never will do so again, and henceforth devote myself to the interest of this immortal club. Here, here, cried Joe, clashing the lid of the warming pan like a cymbal. Go on, go on, added Winkle and Tubman, while the president bowed benignly. I merely wish to say that as a slight token of my gratitude for the honor done me, and as a means of promoting friendly relations between adjoining nations, I have set up a post office in the hedge of the lower corner of the garden, 
a fine, spacious building with padlocks on the doors and every convenience for the males, also the females, if I may be allowed the expression. It's the old Martin house, but I've stopped up the door and made the roof open so it will hold all sorts of things and save our valuable time. Letters, manuscripts, books, and bundles can be passed in there, and as each nation has a key, it will be uncommonly nice, I fancy. Allow me to present the club key, and with many thanks for your favor, take my seat. Great applause as Mr. Weller deposited a little key on the table and subsided. The warming pan clashed and waved wildly, and it was some time before order could be restored. A long discussion followed, and everyone came out surprising, for everyone did her best. So it was an unusually lively meeting, and did not adjourn till a late hour, when it broke up with three shrill cheers for the new member. No one ever regretted the admittance of Sam Weller, for a more devoted, well-behaved, and jovial member no club could have. He certainly did add spirit to the meetings, and a tone to the paper, for his orations convulsed his hearers, and his contributions were excellent, being patriotic, classical, comical, or dramatic, but never sentimental. Joe regarded them as worthy of Bacon, Milton, or Shakespeare, and remodeled her own words with good effect, she thought. The P.O. was a capital little institution, and flourished wonderfully, for nearly as many queer things passed through it as through the real post office. Tragedies and cravats, poetry and pickles, garden seeds and long letters, music and gingerbread, rubbers, invitations, scoldings, and puppies. The old gentleman liked the fun and amused himself by sending odd bundles of mysterious messages and funny telegrams, and his gardener, who was smitten with Hannah's charms, actually sent a love letter to Joe's care. How they laughed when the secret came out, never dreaming how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come. Chapter 11 Experiments The first of June, the kings are off to the seashore tomorrow, and I'm free. Three months vacation. How I shall enjoy it, exclaimed Meg, coming home one warm day to find Joe laid upon the sofa in an unusual state of exhaustion, while Beth took off her dusty boots and Amy made lemonade for the refreshment of the whole party. Aunt March went today for which, oh, be joyful, said Joe. I was mortally afraid she'd ask me to go with her. If she had, I should have felt as if I ought to do it, but Plumfield is about as gay as a churchyard, you know, and I'd rather be excused. We had a flurry getting the old lady off, and I had a fright every time she spoke to me, for I was in such a hurry to be through that I was uncommonly helpful and sweet, and I feared she'd find it impossible to part from me. I quaked till she was fairly in the carriage, and had a final fright, for as it drove off she popped out her head, saying, "'Josephine, won't you?' I didn't hear any more, for I basely turned and fled. I did actually run and whisked round the corner where I felt safe. Poor old Joe. She came in looking as if bears were after her, said Beth, as she cuddled her sister's feet with a motherly air. Aunt March is a regular samphire, is she not? observed Amy, tasting her mixture critically. She means vampire, not seaweed, but it doesn't matter. It's too warm to be particular about one's parts of speech, murmured Joe. 
What shall you do on your vacation? asked Amy, changing the subject with tact. I shall lie abed late and do nothing, replied Meg from the depths of the rocking chair. I've been rounded up early all winter and had to spend my days working for other people, so now I'm going to rest and revel to my heart's content. No, said Joe, that dozy way doesn't suit me. I've laid in a heap of books, and I'm going to improve my shining hours reading on my perch in the old apple tree when I'm not having the... Don't say larks, implored Amy, as a return snub for the samphire correction. I'll say nightingales, then, with Rory. That's proper and appropriate, since he's a warbler. Don't let us do any lessons, Beth, for a while, but play all the time and rest, as the girls mean to, proposed Amy. Well, I will, if Mother doesn't mind. I want to learn some new songs, and my children need fitting up for the summer. They're dreadfully out of order and really suffering for clothes. May we, Mother? asked Meg, turning to Mrs. March, who sat sewing in what they called Marmee's Corner. You may try your experiment for a week and see how you like it. I think by Saturday night you will find that all play and no work is as bad as all work and no play. Oh, dear, no. It will be delicious, I'm sure, said Meg complacently. I now propose a toast, as my friend and partner, Sari Camp, says. Fun forever and no grubbing, cried Joe, rising glass in hand, as the lemonade went round. They all drank it merrily and began the experiment by lounging for the rest of the day. Next morning, Meg did not appear until ten o'clock. Her solitary breakfast did not taste good, and the room seemed lonely and untidy, for Joe had not filled the vases, Beth had not dusted, and Amy's books lay scattered about. Nothing was neat and pleasant but Marmee's corner, which looked as usual. And there Meg sat to rest and read, which meant to yawn and imagine what pretty summer dresses she would get with her salary. Joe spent the morning on the river with Laurie, and the afternoon reading and crying over the wide, wide world up in the apple tree. Beth began by rummaging everything out of the big closet where her family resided, but getting tired before half done, she left her establishment topsy-turvy and went to her music, rejoicing that she had no dishes to wash. Amy arranged her bower, put on her best white frock, smoothed her curls, and sat down to draw under the honeysuckle, hoping someone would see and inquire who the young artist was. As no one appeared but an inquisitive Daddy Longlegs who examined her work with interest, she went to walk, got caught in a shower, and came home dripping. At tea time they compared notes and all agreed that it had been a delightful, though unusually long day. Meg, who went shopping in the afternoon and got a sweet blue muslin, had discovered, after she had cut the breadths off, that it wouldn't wash, which mishap made her slightly cross. Joe had burned the skin off her nose boating and got a raging headache by reading too long. Beth was worried by the confusion of her closet and the difficulty of learning three or four songs at once, and Amy deeply regretted the damage done to her frock, for Katie Brown's party was to be the next day, and now, like Laura McFlimsy, she had nothing to wear. But these were mere trifles, and they assured their mother that the experiment was working finely, she smiled, said nothing, and with Hannah's help did their neglected work, keeping home pleasant and the domestic machinery running smoothly. It was astonishing what a peculiar and uncomfortable state of things was produced 
by the resting and reveling process. The days kept getting longer and longer, and the weather was unusually variable, and so were the tempers. An unsettled feeling possessed everyone, and Satan found plenty of mischief for the idle hands to do. As the height of luxury, Meg put out some of her sewing, and then found time to hang so heavily that she fell to snipping and spoiling her clothes in her attempts to furbish them up a la Moffat. Jo read till her eyes gave out, and she was sick of books, got so fidgety that even good-natured Laurie had a quarrel with her, and so reduced in spirits that she desperately wished she had gone with Aunt Marge. Beth got on pretty well, for she was constantly forgetting that it was to be all play and no work, and fell back into her old ways now and then. But something in the air affected her, and more than once her tranquility was much disturbed, so much so that on one occasion she actually shook poor dear Joanna and told her she was a fright. Amy fared worst of all, for her resources were small, and when her sisters left her to amuse herself, she soon found that accomplished and important little self a great burden. She didn't like dolls, fairy tales were childish, and one couldn't draw all the time. Tea parties didn't amount to much, neither did picnics, unless very well conducted. If one could have a fine house full of nice girls or go traveling, the summer would be delightful, but to stay at home with three selfish sisters and a grown-up boy was enough to try the patience of a Boaz, complained Miss Malaprop after several days devoted to pleasure, fretting, and ennui. No one would own they were tired of the experiment, but by Friday night each acknowledged to herself that she was glad the week was nearly done. Hoping to impress the lesson more deeply, Mrs. March, who had a good deal of humor, resolved to finish off the trial in an appropriate manner, so she gave Hannah a holiday and let the girls enjoy the full effect of the play system. When they got up on Saturday morning, there was no fire in the kitchen, no breakfast in the dining room, and no mother anywhere to be seen. "'Mercy on us! What has happened?' cried Jo, staring about her in dismay. Meg ran upstairs and soon came back again, looking relieved but rather bewildered and a little ashamed. "'Mother isn't sick, only very tired, and she says she is going to stay quietly in her room all day and let us do the best we can. It's a very queer thing for her to do. She doesn't act a bit like herself.' But she says, it has been a hard week for her, so we mustn't grumble, but take care of ourselves. That's easy enough, and I like the idea. I'm aching for something to do, that is, some new amusement, you know, added Joe quickly. In fact, it was an immense relief to them all to have a little work, and they took hold with a will, but soon realized the truth of Hannah's saying, housekeeping ain't no joke. There was plenty of food in the larder, and while Beth and Amy set the table, Meg and Joe got breakfast, wondering as they did why servants ever talked about hard work. I shall take some up to Mother, though she said we were not to think of her, for she'd take care of herself, said Meg, who presided and felt quite matronly behind the teapot. So a tray was fitted out before anyone began, and taken up with the cook's compliments. The boiled tea was very bitter, the omelette scorched, and the biscuits speckled with celeritis. But Mrs. March received her repast with thanks and laughed heartily over it after Joe was gone. Poor little souls, they will have a hard time, I'm afraid, but they won't suffer, and it will do them good, she said. 
producing the more palatable viands with which she had provided herself, and disposing of the bad breakfast so that their feelings might not be hurt, a motherly little deception for which they were grateful. Many were the complaints below, and great the chagrin of the head cook at her failures. Never mind, I'll get the dinner and be servant, you be mistress, keep your hands nice, see company and give orders, said Joe, who knew still less than Meg about culinary affairs. This obliging offer was gladly accepted, and Margaret retired to the parlor, which she hastily put in order by whisking the litter under the sofa and shutting the blinds to save the trouble of dusting. Joe, with perfect faith in her own powers and a friendly desire to make up the quarrel, immediately put a note in the office inviting Laura to dinner. "'You'd better see what you have got before you think of having company,' said Meg, when informed of the hospitable but rash act. "'Oh, there's corned beef and plenty of potatoes, and I shall get some asparagus and a lobster for a relish, as Hannah says. We'll have lettuce and make a salad. I don't know how, but the book tells.' I'll have blancmange and strawberries for dessert, and coffee, too, if you want to be elegant. Don't try too many messes, Joe, for you can't make anything but gingerbread and molasses candy fit to eat. I wash my hands of the dinner party, but since you have asked Laurie on your own responsibility, you may just take care of him. I don't want you to do anything but be civil to him and help to the pudding. You'll give me your advice if I get in a muddle, won't you? asked Joe, rather hurt. "'Yes, but I don't know much except about bread and a few trifles. "'You had better ask Mother's leave before you order anything,' returned Meg prudently. "'Of course I shall. I'm not a fool.' "'And Joe went off in a huff at the doubts expressed of her powers. "'Get what you like, and don't disturb me. "'I'm going out to dinner and can't worry about things at home,' said Mrs. March when Joe spoke to her. "'I never enjoyed housekeeping, and I'm going to take a vacation today "'and read, write, go visiting, and amuse myself.' "'The unusual spectacle of her busy mother rocking comfortably "'and reading early in the morning "'made Joe feel as if some unnatural phenomenon had occurred, "'for an eclipse, an earthquake, or a volcanic eruption "'would hardly have seemed stranger. "'Everything is out of sorts somehow,' she said to herself, going downstairs.' There's Beth crying. That's a sure sign that something is wrong in this family. If Amy is bothering, I'll shake her. Feeling very much out of sorts herself, Jo hurried into the parlor to find Beth sobbing over Pip, the canary, who lay dead in the cage with his little claws pathetically extended, as if imploring the food for want of which he had died. It's all my fault. I forgot him. There isn't a seed or a drop left. Oh, Pip! Oh, Pip, how could I be so cruel to you? cried Beth taking the poor thing in her hands and trying to restore him. Joe peeped into his half-open eye, felt his little heart, and finding him stiff and cold, shook her head and offered her domino box for a coffin. Put him in the oven, and maybe he will get warm and revive, said Amy hopefully. He's been starved, and he shan't be baked now he's dead. I'll make him a shroud, and he shall be buried in the garden, and I'll never have another bird, never, my pip. I am too bad to own one, murmured Beth, sitting on the floor with her pet folded in her hands. The funeral shall be this afternoon, and we will all go. Now don't cry, Bethy. It's a pity, but nothing goes right this week, and Pip has had the worst of the experiment. Make the shroud and lay him in my box, and after the dinner party we'll have a nice little funeral, said Joe, beginning to feel as if she had undertaken a good deal. 
leading the others to console Beth, she departed to the kitchen, which was in a most discouraging state of confusion. Putting on a big apron, she fell to work and got the dishes piled up ready for washing when she discovered that the fire was out. "'Here's a sweet prospect,' muttered Joe, slamming the stove door open and poking vigorously among the cinders. Having rekindled the fire, she thought she would go to market while the water heated. The walk revived her spirits, and flattering herself that she had made good bargains, she trudged home again after buying a very young lobster, some very old asparagus, and two boxes of acid strawberries. By the time she got cleared up, the dinner arrived and the stove was red-hot.' Hannah had left a pan of bread to rise, Meg had worked it up early, set it on the hearth for a second rising, and forgotten it. Meg was entertaining Sally Gardner in the parlor, when the door flew open, and a flowery, crocky, flushed, and disheveled figure appeared, demanding tartly, "'I say, isn't bread riz enough when it runs over the pans?' Sally began to laugh, but Meg nodded and lifted her eyebrows as high as they would go, which caused the apparition to vanish and put the sour bread into the oven without further delay. Mrs. March went out after peeping here and there to see how matters went, also saying a word to comfort Beth, who sat making a winding sheet, while the dear departed lay in state in the domino box. A strange sense of helplessness fell upon the girls as the gray bonnet vanished round the corner, and despair seized them when a few minutes later Miss Crocker appeared and said she'd come to dinner. Now this lady was a thin yellow spinster with a sharp nose and inquisitive eyes who saw everything and gossiped about all she saw. They disliked her but had been taught to be kind to her simply because she was old and poor and had few friends. So Meg gave her the easy chair and tried to entertain her while she asked questions, criticized everything, and told stories of the people whom she knew. Language cannot describe the anxieties, experiences, and exertions which Joe underwent that morning, and the dinner she served up became a standing joke. Fearing to ask any more advice, she did her best alone, and discovered that something more than energy and goodwill is necessary to make a cook. She boiled the asparagus for an hour, and was grieved to find the heads cooked off and the stalks harder than ever. The bread burned black for the salad dressing so aggravated her that she could not make it fit to eat. The lobster was a scarlet mystery to her, but she hammered and poked till it was unshelled and its meager proportions concealed in a grove of lettuce leaves. The potatoes had to be hurried, not to keep the asparagus waiting, and were not done at the last. The blancmange was lumpy, and the strawberries not as ripe as they looked, having been skillfully decant. Well, they can eat beef and bread and butter if they are hungry, only it's mortifying to have to spend your whole morning for nothing, thought Joe, as she rang the bell half an hour later than usual and stood, hot, tired, and dispirited, surveying the feast spread before Lori, accustomed to all sorts of elegance, and Miss Crocker, whose tattling tongue would report them far and wide. Poor Joe would have gladly gone under the table, as one thing after another was tasted and left. While Amy giggled, Meg looked distressed, Miss Crocker pursed her lips, and Laurie talked and laughed with all his might to give a cheerful tone to the festive scene. Joe's one strong point was the fruit, for she had sugared it well and had a pitcher of rich cream to eat with it. Her hot cheeks cooled a trifle, and she drew a long breath as the pretty glass plates went round, and everyone looked graciously at the little rosy islands floating in a sea of cream. 
Miss Crocker tasted first, made a wry face, and drank some water hastily. Joe, who refused, thinking there might not be enough, for they dwindled sadly after the picking over, glanced at Lori, but he was eating away manfully, though there was a slight pucker about his mouth, and he kept his eye fixed on his plate. Amy, who was fond of delicate fare, took a heaping spoonful, choked, hid her face in her napkin, and left the table precipitately. "'Oh, what is it?' exclaimed Joe, trembling. "'Salt instead of sugar, and the cream is sour,' replied Meg with a tragic gesture. Joe uttered a groan and fell back in her chair, remembering that she had given a last hasty powdering to the berries out of one of the two boxes on the kitchen table and had neglected to put the milk in the refrigerator. She turned scarlet and was on the verge of crying when she met Laurie's eyes, which would look merry in spite of his heroic efforts. The comical side of the affair suddenly struck her, and she laughed till the tears ran down her cheeks. So did everyone else, even Croker, as the girls called the old lady, and the unfortunate dinner ended gaily with bread and butter, olives and bun. I haven't strength of mind enough to clear up now, so we will sober ourselves with a funeral, said Joe as they rose, and Miss Crocker made ready to go, being eager to tell the new story at another friend's dinner table. They did sober themselves for Beth's sake. Laurie dug a grave under the ferns in the grove, Little Pip was laid in with many tears by his tender-hearted mistress, and covered with moss while a wreath of violets and chickweed was hung on the stone which bore his epitaph, composed by Joe, while she struggled with the dinner. Here lies Pip March, who died the 7th of June, loved and lamented sore, and not forgotten soon. At the conclusion of the ceremonies, Beth retired to her room, overcome with emotion and lobster, but there was no place of repose, for the beds were not made, and she found her grief much assuaged by beating up the pillows and putting things in order. Meg helped Joe clear away the remains of the feast, which took half the afternoon, and left them so tired that they agreed to be contented with tea and toast for supper. Laurie took Amy to drive, which was a deed of charity, for the sour cream seemed to have had a bad effect upon her temper. Mrs. March came home to find the three older girls hard at work in the middle of the afternoon, and a glance at the closet gave her an idea of the success of one part of the experiment. Before the housewives could rest, several people called, and there was a scramble to get ready to see them. Then tea must be got, errands done, and one or two necessary bits of sewing neglected until the last minute. As twilight fell, dewy and still, one by one they gathered on the porch, where the June roses were budding beautifully, and each groaned or sighed as she sat down, as if tired or troubled. "'What a dreadful day this has been,' began Joe, usually the first to speak. "'It has seemed shorter than usual, but so uncomfortable,' said Meg. "'Not a bit like home,' added Amy. "'It can't seem so without Marmy and little Pip,' sighed Beth, glancing with full eyes at the empty cage above her head. "'Here's mother, dear, and you shall have another bird tomorrow if you want it.' As she spoke, Mrs. March came and took her place among them, looking as if her holiday had not been much pleasanter than theirs. "'Are you satisfied with your experiment, girls, or do you want another week of it?' she asked, as Beth nestled up to her, and the rest turned toward her with brightening faces as flowers turned toward the sun. "'I don't,' cried Joe decidedly. "'Nor I,' echoed the others.' 
You think, then, that it is better to have a few duties and live a little for others, do you? Longing and larking doesn't pay, observed Joe, shaking her head. I'm tired of it, and I mean to go to work at something right off. Suppose you learn plain cooking. That's a useful accomplishment which no woman should be without, said Mrs. March, laughing inaudibly at the recollection of Joe's dinner party, for she had met Miss Crocker and heard her account of it. Mother, did you go away and let everything be just to see how we'd get on, cried Meg, who had suspicions all day. Yes, I wanted you to see how the comfort of all depends on each doing her share faithfully. While Hannah and I did your work, you got on pretty well, though I don't think you were very happy or amiable. So I thought, as a little lesson, I would show you what happens when everyone thinks only of herself. Don't you feel that it is pleasanter to help one another, to have daily duties which make leisure sweet when it comes, and to bear and forbear that home might be comfortable and lovely to us all? We do, mother, we do, cried the girls. Then let me advise you to take up your little burdens again, for though they seem heavy sometimes, they are good for us, and lighten as we learn to carry them. Work is wholesome, and there is plenty for everyone. It keeps us from ennui and mischief, is good for health and spirits, and gives us a sense of power and independence better than money or fashion. We'll work like bees, and love it too, see if we don't, said Joe. I'll learn plain cooking for my holiday task, and the next dinner party I have shall be a success. I'll make the set of shirts for father, instead of letting you do it, Marmy. I can, and I will, though I'm not fond of sewing. That will be better than fussing over my own things, which are plenty nice enough as they are, said Meg. I'll do my lessons every day, and not spend so much time with my music and dolls. I am a stupid thing, and ought to be studying, not playing, was Beth's resolution, while Amy followed their example by heroically declaring, I shall learn to make buttonholes, and attend to my parts of speech. Very good, then I am quite satisfied with the experiment, and fancy that we shall not have to repeat it, only don't go to the other extreme, and delve like slaves, have regular hours for work and play, Make each day both useful and pleasant, and prove that you understand the worth of time by employing it well. Then youth will be delightful, old age will bring few regrets, and life become a beautiful success in spite of poverty. We'll remember, Mother. And they did. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been Chapters 10 and 11 of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me to help improve the quality. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature, where you can also find a list of benefits for being a patron. Please also follow me on Instagram at relaxing literature or on Twitter at relaxing lit ASMR. To leave your comments, questions, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening, and good night.